You're listening to In Conversation from the Educational Freedom Institute. Jason Bedrick. Jason Bedrick is the first person on the Educational Freedom Institute podcast who is a repeat player. Wow. The first time we've had the same person besides Matthew Nielsen and myself since we're always on the dang podcast together. But Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, is our first repeat um, uh, guest. Offender? No, oh, that was, no, no, yes. yeah, that's what right. was is, this, is this to make it up for insulting me by waiting so long to invite me in the first place? Is that the? <laughs> yeah, that, that was the problem. Yeah, it's right. a good way to make up. I, I make forgive up you and I appreciate it. So uh, just for everybody, we have tons of things to talk about. And Jason always has a wealth of knowledge. That's why he's on our podcast again. He, he's going to give us an update on what's going on in Arizona right now with school choice. Uh, if you looked at the title of this talk, we're going to talk a little bit about this book that we've all read, or each each one of us have read. I would recommend everyone go check it out. It's by Dr. Thomas Sowell, Charter Schools and Their Enemies. Really shiny cover, uh, but go buy it on Amazon. I'll give everybody the link in a second. Uh, and we'll talk about a recent Supreme Court case, uh, the Espinosa versus Montana uh, Department of Revenue, which was a huge win for school choice. So. Jason, how about you jump into that? Could you give us an update on on Espinoza and what the background of that case was, and what what are the implications for different states? Sure. I mean, this is a, this is a huge victory for religious liberty and educational choice, and it's a, a decision that you can trace at least as far back as the Zelman decision on uh, two thousand one. You can say this is two decades in the making. Uh, obviously, uh, it, it's uh, also uh, on the religious liberty side, uh, the next step in the Trinity Lutheran case, we can get into all those. But really, I mean, this this is more than a century in the making. Um, this is this really is the nail in the coffin for Blaine. I mean, I, um, it did not it did not technically repeal the Blaine amendments. I'm sure most of your listeners know what the Blaine amendments are, so I'm not going to give the whole Blaine amendment spiel. But the short version for those who don't know is that uh, James Blaine, continental liar from the state of Maine, as he was known, he was a, he was a US Senator, former House Speaker, uh, uh, almost got a constitutional amendment to the US Constitution that would have prohibited um, public funds from going to sectarian schools, which was a not so, not so veiled euphemism uh, for Catholic schools. Uh, they, it failed, but they succeeded in getting it in nearly 40 state constitutions. And of course, there you go. Uh, this famous or infamous uh, image from Thomas Nast, the, the uh, famous uh, cartoonist in Harper's Weekly, was actually cited in the decision uh, by, or at least in the concurrence by Justice Alito. Uh, and there you see the, uh, the Catholic bishops coming ashore in the form of alligators and this Protestant man uh, bravely with his Bible tucked oh. in his shirt, uh, protecting his terrified wife and children from the massive uh, Catholic immigrants who are bringing with them rum, Romanism, and rebellion. Uh, in those days, of course, the, the common schools, the forerunners of our public schools or district schools, uh, were religious schools. So they taught the Bible, just the Protestant version of it. They uh, led children in prayer, just it was Protestant prayer. Uh, and so when the Catholics said, you know, you're running these schools that we're paying for with our tax dollars, but we can't access these schools uh, because they have a different value set than what we have. They, they, they teach different religious tradition than, than what we teach. Uh, the, the, we think the dollars should follow our own students to our own schools. And of course, uh, the Protestant establishment at the time said, no, our schools are non-sectarian. You know, anybody can come to our schools and we'd gladly take your children and Protestantize them for you. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that the legacy of Blaine is effectively dead. And why do I say that? Justice Roberts, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is almost an exact quote, said that uh, state governments do not need to subsidize private education, but if they choose to do so, they may not discriminate on the basis of religion. They cannot say this program is available. Anybody can take these dollars and go to any qualified school, you know, that meets the state guidelines for, you know, an, an accredited, uh, you know, K-12 private school. 
unless they teach religion. That violates the free exercise clause of the U.S. Constitution. It is an impermissible form of religious discrimination. Uh, and therefore, if you're going to offer a voucher program, you have to offer it to everybody. Uh, and that's, uh, that's very much in line with the Trinity Lutheran decision, uh, where they made a very similar decision talking about, um, in that case, it was uh, ground cover for uh, mm -hmm. playgrounds. Uh, and it was a church, Trinity Lutheran, that applied for their playground. Uh, they had a, I think they were running a preschool. And the government said, look, uh, in Missouri, you're, you're eligible. Uh, you meet all the criteria except that you're religious. And therefore, because you are a religious entity, our Blaine Amendment says the dollars can't flow to you. Uh, that was a 7-2 to two decision. Um, they said that that form of religious discrimination is odious to the Constitution. Uh, and this was very much in line with that decision. Uh, so again, why do I say that Blaine is dead, even though the Blaine Amendments are, are still technically... Uh, in the uh, constitution of, of uh, you know, nearly 40 states? Well, because the, the U.S. Supreme Court said basically when you're interpreting your Blaine Amendment, you need to interpret it in line with First Amendment jurisprudence. And uh, it means that voucher programs are no longer blocked constitutionally in nearly every single state. Uh, I say nearly every single state. Actually, I used to. <laughs> That's I used to have <laughs> this, this was my hand-drawn map. You can see I, I, I actually ripped it off. I used to have it next to my desk. This was just sort of my go-to, you know, so I'd remember, okay, which states is it constitutional and in which states, you know, have, have we had a lawsuit and it was tested and we won or lost? Uh, and you can see even then most, most states, it wasn't tested at all, but uh, most of the states where it was tested, uh, you know, school choice was, was ruled constitutional or at the very least, uh, oh my gosh! Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're quick. You're quick. Yeah. Um, you can see that in some states there. Uh, you know, they said uh, like in Arizona and Florida, uh, vouchers are not constitutional, but tax credit scholarships or education savings accounts are constitutional. It got kind of complicated. Uh, there's a new map, Corey. How quickly can you pull up the new map from the Institute for Justice? Uh, there, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see that nearly every state now it is constitutional with a few exceptions. So in Michigan, uh, where they have what we call the Uber Blaine and in Massachusetts, uh, where they also have a constitutional provision that is uh, really um, uh, quite an obstacle. It's not, it, there's not a religious issue. They just say that, that public dollars cannot flow to private education um, uh, at I mean, all. Doesn't that, still, doesn't that still discriminate on the basis of religion in a sense, because only private schools can be religious <laughs> you can make the argument yeah so I, I i i i'm not sure that there's a free exercise clause here issue but there there actually i think may be an establishment clause issue in other words that you've essentially mm -hmm. you've essentially established uh secularism as the state religion and yeah. so i mean what, what are secularists today saying Okay, so religious families are saying, hey, we want to send our children to our schools. We're taxpayers, too. We want our children to go to schools that reflect our values and teach our religion. We think that this is an important subject that should be, you know, a, a, not just a part of the curriculum, but but it, it infuses our entire worldview, right? Um, and, and the secular establishment says, oh, well, that's nice, but you can do that on your own dime. And you still have to pay taxes for our schools. And of course, our schools are open to everybody and we will gladly take your children and teach them our values, right? I mean, that's exactly what the Protestant establishment was saying to the Catholics a hundred years ago. Uh, so uh, not exactly, but very, very, very close. I mean, the, the, the core argument that they're making is uh, I think a very, very close parallel. Um, is there a constitutional case I know, Corey, that you and Neil McCluskey and, and others, um, TJ, uh, Dr. TJ D'Agostino, uh, Dr. Steve Calabrese and others have, have made this case. Um, I, I think it's persuasive. I don't think we're there yet. But look, it took us to 20 years to get from Zellman, which says that vouchers uh, are constitutional, that states may enact a voucher program to the decision in Espinoza where the Supreme Court said, if you enact a voucher program, which we already determined that you may do, you must include religious schools. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you, Corey, uh, I, 
I won't take it away from you. You had a slight amendment to Justice uh, Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, two sentence summary of the decision that I think makes a lot of sense. Go ahead. What was that? Yeah. Instead of this, you just replace a couple of words. And instead of saying a state need not subsidize private education, you could say, well, a state need not subsidize education, but once a state decides to do so, it, it cannot disqualify some schools just because they are private. So yeah. therefore, you know, if you don't have to, you don't have to pay for people's mm -hmm. education through taxpayer dollars. But if you're going to do so, you can't just say, oh, well, you know, this whole type of school cannot be, um, you know, used. It's kind of like saying, uh, uh, you know, food stamps can only be used at government grocery stores, or Pell grants yeah. can only be used at public universities. And look, I, I'm not a I'm not a constitutional scholar, and I don't play one uh, on podcast live streams. But uh, you know, I, I it doesn't seem to me that there is a strong constitutional case that vouchers are required. Uh, I I will say, um, you and Neil and some of the others have made a case that was more persuasive than I would have anticipated initially. Um, I, so, but I, I, I don't know that there is actually a constitutional requirement under the federal constitution that that be the case. That being said, I, I strongly believe that the argument that you have made is much more in line with our founding principles and the principles mm -hmm. that, that the United States is still supposed to stand for. Uh, I, I have long said that our education system should respect and reflect uh, our founding values of liberty and pluralism. Uh, and that means uh, the freedom of parents to choose the education that works best for their children. Uh, and the, you know, if the promise of education, of public education, is that every child will have access to a high quality education that meets his or her learning needs, it makes sense that the dollars should follow the child. So, like you say often, you know, fund children, not systems. Uh, and that if we have a pluralist society, right, uh, th this means that we're going to have a whole bunch of different people who have different religions, who have different philosophies, different worldviews, different values, and that it makes sense that we respect the rights of families to raise and, and local communities to raise their children uh, in those values uh, and to have different school systems. Uh, and, and I know that, you know, there's these concerns of balkanization and whatnot. The reality is we've had this experiment with Catholic education for more than 100 years, and we actually find uh, in study after study, uh, including, Corey, uh, in a forthcoming chapter uh, in your your book, uh, School <laughs> Choice Myths, which is coming up, uh, I know Dr. Patrick Wolf, uh, he had an essay, uh, really a, a literature review years ago called Civics Exam that was published in Education Next. Uh, he's got an updated version of that. And what it finds is that private schools, particularly Catholic schools, do an even better job than the government-run schools at inculcating uh, civic values, civic knowledge, uh, uh, political tolerance, uh, and, and you know, patriotism, a whole slew of things that you might expect that the government schools would, would do a better job because that's, you know, that seems to be the purpose, right? We bring them all together and we, we teach them the importance of uh, this nation and its uh, founding principles. Uh, but actually, the private schools on net seem to do a better job. Uh, and, and also, if we even look to Europe, uh, you have a whole bunch of countries that for a very long time have been funding all different types of schools, uh, Catholic schools, Protestant schools, Jewish schools, Muslim schools, secular schools, Trade even schools. You know, Marxist schools. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Um, and yet uh, you actually reduce the amount of friction between these communities because instead of fighting to having their have their views represented in the assigned district school uh, they actually all get to have their needs met uh, and get to have their values expressed in the school that they choose and then they're not forced to fight with their friends and neighbors who have differing backgrounds and different religious traditions over what's in the local public school. Uh, so it's actually a system that I think uh, makes a lot more sense and is more in line with, with our values as Americans. Yeah, I think another argument there is that if your schools have a strong incentive or competitive pressure to teach logic effectively, then you won't question people's backgrounds 
and you won't be intolerant of other people's views because of that lack of logic. Instead, you'll 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 understand that hey, we can disagree on something, but we just uh, have different you know arguments that that we make and different beliefs about things. So, I think if people are well trained in logic, they they tend to be more tolerant of other people's views instead of just thinking that the other person's evil. Uh, another another thing I want to get on on Michigan really quickly before we move to another topic is, and Jason, I think I've talked to you a little bit about this before, but their Blaine amendments says no, you know, it's pretty expansive. It says no public monies or property shall be appropriated or paid or any public credit utilized by the legislature or any other political sub subdivision or agency of the state directly or indirectly to aid or maintain any private denominational or other non-public pre-elementary elementary or secondary school um so most people have looked at this and said okay well you can't have school choice but they have publicly funded pre-k programs in michigan they have two of them that can be used at private institutions and i looked a little deeper into it and a couple of them are religiously affiliated institutions as well so it's strange that they allow certain types of choice and no one fights against it for certain types of choice like pre-K, but then for K through 12, there, there tends to be people saying, oh no, we can't do this because of this Blaine Amendment. If we if we can do it for pre-K, we should be able to do it for K through 12 as well. And I also wanna point out that it, they only say public credit, like a public credit. So if you define tax credit scholarships as private, maybe right. you can still get school choice in Michigan. What do yeah. you think? The thing is the the, the Look, I, I wish you were right. Uh, public credit, <laughs> the, it's the credit that's public. It's the credit that's offered on your taxes. That doesn't necessarily mean that the dollars themselves are public. Uh, and, uh, but you, you do it, make a good point that- You can already donate to churches, right? What's that? I can already donate to church, to, to K through 12 uh, church run private schools in Michigan, right? You uh, get a credit, yeah, you get public it, credit. <laughs> are you getting a public credit for donating to them or you're getting a tax deduction i don't know i'd have to look deeper into to michigan but it seems like the same kind of idea right i'm getting some type of tax benefit public tax right. benefit right for, i mean so at the very least those those uh the programs that you mentioned though pre-k i mean that does seem to violate the state constitution uh, i just uh I, i'm guessing that they didn't have anybody who was politically willing to challenge it Mm hmm. So real quick, before we leave the topic, functionally for people as a practical matter, what does this mean? What does the Espinoza decision mean? I'm mom, mom, a dad, yeah. a in New Hampshire or Maine or <laughs> why do you have those states, Matthew? Yeah, so there you go. So uh, actually, before, can you pull that map back up? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, so. I'll get to Matt's question in a second with those states. Practically speaking, what does it mean today? Uh, nothing. Uh, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't change anything immediately, uh, except for the families in Montana where the program has been restored after the state Supreme Court struck it down. Um, happens to be that Mo Montana has the worst designed tax credit scholarship in the country. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. You, you can only they donate award, huh? credit you can only receive a credit of $150. I mean, so it takes dozens of people just to like actually fund a scholarship that, that it, that's worth much. Uh, and uh, you, in Montana, uh, there's only but like, I think two dozen families that are actually participating in the program. So at least that program is back and hopefully the legislature uh, now will, will go back and revise it because it's other, besides that uh, particular aspect of it, it's actually fairly well designed, but uh, that one aspect cripples the program and makes it almost inoperable. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's why I call it the most poorly designed. Then you've got these other four states in yellow. Uh, so, uh, you know, first Michigan and Massachusetts, it changes nothing. Uh, school choice is still blocked there. Uh, in Arizona, Hawaii, and Kentucky, they still have the option of passing a tax credit scholarship or in some cases an education savings account, but they do not have the ability to have a directly um, publicly funded voucher program. But look, Arizona is already one of the most robust states for educational choice. They've got 
four tax credit scholarship programs. They have an ed education savings account. Uh, about 5% of the population is already participating in these, these programs. Uh, plus they've got a very robust charter sector. Uh, and then there's open enrollments. When you add all of those up, at least in Maricopa County, where the majority of the state lives, you've got more than half of students are enrolled in some sort of choice program. Uh, most of them in, in uh, public school choice, going from uh, one district to another district. Mm -hmm. um, the big, the next big change, as Matt uh, foreshadowed, will be in Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, where they have what are called town tuitioning programs. Now, in those states, uh, first, Maine and Vermont, those programs date back to the late 1860s, early 1870s. Those are the oldest school choice programs in the country. Uh, and uh, in New Hampshire, they were de facto doing town tuitioning for at least more than a century, but they only made it clear in statute that this was permissible uh, a few years ago. Uh, but what it means is that, look, they've got a lot of rural areas that have uh, very small populations. They don't have a sizable enough population to run their own uh, district school. So they would either contract with a neighboring town and send their kids to that town, uh, or they could actually contract with private schools. Uh, that's what the town tuitioning is. Uh, but each of these programs said, if you're gonna contract with a private school, it must be a secular school. And so the Espinoza decision seems to say that in those cases, uh, they can't simply exclude religious schools. Uh, so th there's already a lawsuit in Maine. Uh, I, I hear that there's likely to be a lawsuit in New Hampshire and Vermont soon. And I expect that uh, the appellate court will rule in, in favor of the plaintiffs and say that, yes, uh, you know, the, the clear implication of Espinoza is that this is religious discrimination and it has to stop. Is IJ working on those cases or are those? Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. IJ already, the Institute for Justice uh, already filed a suit in Maine, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm hearing that they're likely to file suit in the other two states. Right. Cool. Well, more to come on that. So, yeah, the, my point was, and, and I wanted you to explain it because you did it much better than I could, but um, my point there with, with the question was the Supreme Court has decided this, but there's legwork still to be done. Yeah. Uh, in all of these places, because now it has to, that decision from the top, now the, the Supreme Court has to filter down through state statute, state, and, and it needs to be litigated, it needs, you know, however that comes out in each state, however that, those, that decision from the Supreme Court manifests itself, it will, and it will manifest itself differently from state to state, we, we know that, but uh, at least there's, uh, there's that decision that's beneficial to families uh, across the country. So that's nice. Certainly. So Jason, cool. what's, what's going on in Arizona? Yeah, tell us about ESAs. Uh, so in Arizona today, there the State Board of Education had an open meeting uh, where they solicited uh, feedback from the public uh, for a draft of their regulations pertaining to the education savings account program. Uh, there was a bill that was passed earlier this year. It was one of the last bills that was passed before the state legislature shut down uh, due to COVID-19. I believe it was SB 1224, uh, which made a number of changes to the education savings account program. Uh, one of which was that it uh, shifted a lot of the um, oversight of the program to the State Board of Education. And I, I will give them a lot of credit. Um, you know, this, this wasn't something that they were asking for or soliciting, but it was something that a lot of parents were asking for, uh, particularly after, uh, A, the parents have, have for, for many years been struggling uh, with the uh, Arizona Department of Education to get their needs met uh, and, and uh, in, you know, all sorts of stories. I mean, I speak to parents on, on a fairly regular basis and you hear, you hear these stories, you know, oh, you know, um, I had this item approved and then later they told me that it was not approved anymore. And now they're telling me I have to go pay things back. Or, you know, I was in a group 
there, there's a, there are some Facebook groups uh, for ESA parents. Uh, you know, somebody said that they had this certain item approved and it looked really cool. And uh, I, I decided to buy it for my kids and we really liked it. And then all of a sudden it gets denied. You know, it was approved mm -hmm. for somebody else, but now it's denied for me. And I have to get, they send me a threatening letter saying that you're, you know, you're engaged in fraud and you've got to pay this back. Uh, you know, so parents have been struggling to get clarity on which items were allowed and which weren't. Uh, one thing, for example, subscription services. These are becoming increasingly popular, especially while schools have been shut down and people are at home. Uh, you've got these these uh, subscription services where they're sending you curricular materials, uh, and, and very often they're sending you like um, STEM experiments. You know, STEM uh, is our acronym for science, technology, uh, um, engineering, and math. Or sometimes you hear STEAM, where they add art. Uh, and so they're getting all these projects, but because it is not technically part of a curriculum, however you might define that, uh, the department has reversed a previous ruling where the department previously allowed these. Now the department is saying, well, these are no longer allowed. So parents are just really, really frustrated. Uh, oh, by the way, I should just, uh, I want to make one note. Uh, you often hear the, the program be uh, attacked for being unaccountable and for you know, all this misspending. Well, all those categories I just described where parents are just honestly trying to educate their children, those are counted as misspending, even though they're actually buying educational products that have been approved previously or approved for some people and not for other people. And despite all that, the Auditor General found that less than 1% of spending in the program actually uh, was misspent. And that includes all of the honest categories of misspending. Uh, so this is far more accountable than nearly any other government program that you'll find out there. Uh, I, I can guarantee even more than, you know, in, in the district school system. Uh, so uh, the parents... So, so parents... Yeah. So the parents that get money to spend on their children's education are using it for their children's education. Yes. And now there have been some cases where, where, oh, you know, people bought uh, clothing or they bought, you know, uh, what were some of the crazy they had televisions and stuff. TV, there, were yeah. a few, there were a few cases, you know, people were using debit cards and sometimes the debit cards got stolen. Uh, either the card itself or, you know, through a card reader, you know, you go to Walmart and you buy some things that are, um, you know, Walmart is an approved vendor because, even though most of what they sell is not approved, they, they do sell a number of approved items. So somebody goes to Walmart, they buy some things, and uh, a card reader is compromised. Well, now some scammer is buying a bunch of stuff. Um, it gets caught, but that's not because parents were misusing the program. That was that was a you know a case of a scammer, right? That can that can happen anywhere, and and of course it, it's not reported that way in the media. Unfortunately, in the media in the state is very very uh, anti-educational choice, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, I give a lot of credit. The State Board of Education had a hearing today. Um, there were, it seemed to me, dozens of, of uh, mostly moms. There were some fathers too, but mostly ESA moms uh, who were speaking about uh, the various um, elements of the program that need to be tweaked, uh, areas where there needs to be a little bit more oversight of the Department of Education to make sure that they are um, you know, adequately meeting the needs of families uh, and running the program efficiently. You know, for example, one of the categories of eligible students are children of parents who are blind. Uh, and yet there was somebody who came on uh, today and was saying, yeah, the only problem is the, the program is not accessible to people who are blind. You know, she needs to rely on other people to do a, a lot of the, the paperwork and stuff like that because they, they have not done it in such a way that, that, it actually meets one of the eligibility uh, categories. So there is a lot of work. I mean, it's this uh, parents, I will say over and over were, were saying how appreciative they were for the program, what a godsend it's been for their children. Uh, but the Department of Ed has a long way to go um, to, to meet their needs. And uh, I, I give, again, lots of credit to the Department of Ed, uh, sorry, to the State Board of Ed for um, the way they have been actively soliciting feedback from ESA parents about how the program is working. That's good. So when is Arizona going to expand that program to everybody? <laughs> well, you know, they tried once. Uh, unfortunately, it, um, 
Prop the, the bill was not. Yeah, that was Prop 305. It went to the ballot. It was rejected by the voters. But there were a lot of people who were in favor of the program who also opposed the ballot initiative because of the the interaction with something called the voter. Uh, is it, what is it? The Voter Protection Act, uh, Matt? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, which essentially says that if something is passed on the, on the ballot, in order to make any changes to the program, you require a three-fourths majority of the state legislature, which, you know, is practically impossible. Yeah, you couldn't get the, you can get the Ten Commandments through with a three-fourths vote of the state legislature. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so there were a lot of people who said, look, you know, we, we want the bill that was passed, but we don't want that bill set in stone, because especially a new program like this. We're constantly going back and, and, and tweaking it, changing it, improving it. Uh, and so there were a lot of people who were in favor of school choice and in favor of the expansion who also voted it down. Uh, so it's it's not open to everybody yeah. yet, but Arizona again still has the most robust uh, school choice environment in the country, and we have another program called the tax credit scholarships, uh, which there are four different types. One is for uh, switchers, those switching out of a public school system. Uh, you've got uh, the low income scholarships. You've got the disabled or dis displaced scholarships. And then you have one that's available for everybody. There you have it on the EdChoice website. Um, you have one that's available to everybody. So really there, every mm -hmm. child in the state is eligible for at least one type of private school choice program. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, doesn't EdChoice have like this EdChoice share? I'm not gonna go look for it right now, but I think Drew Cat did something like EdChoice share where they count up the states with the most. And I think Arizona was one or two. I think it's Florida and Arizona. Yeah, I think most. Florida might be number one and Arizona number two. Florida deserves it. If, if, if Arizona's gonna get beat out by another state, then Florida. It's gonna be Florida, yeah. And yeah, I, I see in the comments, uh, Kayla Svedeen has a, a number of comments you might wanna highlight here. You know, she is an ESA mom. She testified today in front of the State Board of Ed, uh, and she is the head of a group called Empowered Arizona Families. You can find them on Twitter, Empowered AF, and I highly recommend following her account. Uh, she's fantastic. Yeah, she she just got into a scuffle with uh, Brookings' Andre Perry uh, over the last couple of weeks, and she's done a really good job at just responding to claims using facts and logic and look, it's just, you know, this isn't her full-time job or anything. She's a, a mom that has a student, uh, a special needs student, right, uh, using the program. And, uh, you know, she, she just pretty much asked, like, why shouldn't I be able to choose a school that works for my child? And there's just no response. I mean, there's no, no, there is no, there is no good response to that. And so um, everyone should go follow her. I'll, I'll put the link to her Twitter in a second, but it's, uh, at empowered underscore AF, empowered underscore Arizona families or AF. So I'll yep. link to that in a second. But um, we should really talk a little bit about at least uh, what the title of this talk is, which is, or this uh, in, in conversation podcast, which is uh, charter schools and their enemies. I'll put a link for everybody. It's out available on Amazon. It came out on Thomas Sowell's 90th birthday couple yeah. a week or two ago um uh, available on amazon so check it out uh, i will say we have to we have to tell everybody that uh matthew and i had an interview set up with thomas soul and so did jason uh but that's unfortunately been postponed until further notice we'll, we'll keep everybody updated whenever we get more information on that but uh you know we would like to talk just a little bit about you know our take on the book and and why everybody else should read it. So Jason, what, what's your main takeaways from the book and uh, what, what, or maybe just some, some things you'd like to highlight from the book? Well, look, I mean, just to take a step back, I've, I've been a long time fan of Dr. Soul. Uh, he is one of my intellectual heroes. Uh, there are, are very few books I could say that I read and really changed my worldview, but uh, he had a book called uh, Conflict of Visions uh, which I would go grab on my bookshelf, but um, I'm sort of tied to my tethered to my computer right now. Uh, but conflict of visions, uh, he's saying he's had a phenomenal, he's, he's written over 50 books. Uh, I've got more than a dozen of them over here, you know, basic economics, applied economics, uh, public intellectuals and in society or intellectuals in society. I mean, there are some really phenomenal books, but conflict of visions is, is, is one of the best. Uh, I read that in college. 
he basically contrasts two views, which he calls con constrained and unconstrained. Uh, elsewhere, he calls it the um, uh, visions of the anointed <laughs> versus the um, the tragic view of the world, and uh, really explains why you've got all these disparate uh, you know policy subject areas, and yet people sort of seem to land on one side or the other uh, of all of them, and, and they don't seem to be connected. Um, but he's he's a, he's a brilliant intellect. He um, he grew up very poor, came from a, a, a very rough and tumble background, uh, and and yet was able to rise up. Uh, went to Ivy League schools, uh, studied, got his PhD uh, at the University of Chicago. Studied under Milton Friedman. Um, he was at the time a Marxist, studying under Milton Friedman, uh, although later. Uh, became a free market economist and a, a great friend of, uh, of Friedman. Uh, I actually found uh, when I was uh, doing a little research as I was reading the book, I wanted to see you know what else he had said about school choice in the past. There was actually a debate in 1986. Uh, on one side of the, the debate was the head of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, um, Al Shanker, and there were two other people, I didn't, I didn't recognize their names. Uh, on the pro-school choice side of the debate was Thomas Sowell, Milton Friedman, and William F. Buckley. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it was a great debate. I, I, I can I guess who won. Yeah, well, I posted on the, Jake Re, the JP Green blog, and uh, you, you, can, you can go back, check it out. You can find it on YouTube. But uh, in the book, essentially what, what uh, Dr. Sowell does uh, is he, he examines uh, charter schools. Charter schools and their enemies. Uh, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't cite other research or anything like that. What he does is he looks. He tries. Essentially, it's 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 not exactly a random assignment trial, uh, but what he does is he says, "Look, let's let's take uh, charter schools. You've got a whole bunch of charter schools, particularly in New York, that are co-locating, meaning that they are in literally in the same building." as a traditional district school. And so they're essentially serving the same population. They're serving children from the neighborhood. Um, they, you know, the uh, racial and socioeconomic background of, of these two populations is, is roughly the same. Uh, now, there is one major difference, which is that everybody in the charter school opted to be in the charter school. So the, what you really wanna have is a random assignment trial where you look at those who opted in and randomly did not get in because of a lottery or opted in but randomly did not. That would be the ideal. But this is sort of, uh, if that's the gold standard, this is sort of uh, a silver, silver standard review. Um, and, you know, so look, he's, he's, he's essentially he's controlling for buildings, he's controlling for race, he's controlling for socioeconomic status. And because you've got such long wait lists, you actually do have a whole bunch of people who applied to get in that still end up in the district school anyway, right? Uh, so again, not quite gold standard, but but pretty close. And uh, with I think one exception, uh, these these uh, they're really CMO chains, uh, charter management organization chains. So uh, primarily, uh, correct me which ones I'm missing. It was KIPP, it was Uncommon Schools, Success Academy. Uh, I think one was called Aspire, uh, and I think there was a fifth, if I'm not mistaken. The democracy. Prep. I don't think it was. I don't, I don't think democracy prep was one of them. Um, you got you got the you got four of them there for sure. Yeah, yeah but in I, any I case, the that came to my they, mind. They basically they they blow the competition out of the water. Achievement right? first. Achievement first, right? Uh, so they they at least on 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 these measures of pet scores, which are not the most important or only important things, they are a very important thing. Uh, he shows that they are blowing everybody away and they're doing it at less per pupil than the traditional district school with a very similar population. Mm -hmm. Okay. So why aren't these then hugely popular? He says, well, there's millions of reasons why there's a lot of opposition in the form of millions of dollars, really billions yeah. of dollars, uh, that are at stake. And then he, he just details all the different ways that these schools or, or that the um, district school establishment tries to prevent charter schools from growing. Uh, despite that, I mean, in the last 20 years, you've basically had more than a quintupling of the number of students that are in uh, in charter schools, even though the 
district school population has increased by about 1%. So, uh, but they find all sorts of very creative ways of, of making sure that the charter schools don't grow. Some through regulation, others through, I mean, even things like, um, there was an example from Tucson Unified. Uh, Tucson Unified uh, here in Arizona was going to sell a building. They didn't want to sell it to a charter school. A charter school offered $2.1 million to, to buy a building. And they decided they would sell it for 1.5 million to a developer uh, with the caveat that they couldn't use it for a school. Right? Yeah, they had to tear it down. They were willing to forego more than half a million dollars that they could have put into the rest of their school system. They could have used to pay teacher salaries and to put money into the classroom for kids. They said, no, we would rather not have that money so long as there's not a charter school nearby that families might want to might want to use. Uh, there, the detail he details all across the country cases like this where they sell a property and they put in they put a clause in the in the contract saying that you know for the next 50 years this can't be used for a school uh the way in new york where they were hiding the fact that they had a whole bunch of empty space in some of these schools so that charter schools uh couldn't use the state regulations to co-locate with those schools and to you know these are these are empty buildings that are being uh, funded by the taxpayers and we want to get our bang for our buck. There are kids that want to go to the school. There's a school that's willing to teach the kids what they need is building space. And we've got this empty taxpayer funded space, but they're trying to keep them out of those, yeah. out of those spaces. Yep. That's crazy. So I want to put you guys on the spot here real quick. And, and I'll give you a second to do it. But what was your, do you guys have like a favorite chapter, a favorite line, a favorite phrase? I have mine and, and I'm going to read it. And I'll give you guys a second to, to come up with yours. But here's mine. So this is uh, from page 130. And it's from the chapter called The Future. I'll read it here. So um, it says, schools exist for the education of children. Schools do not exist to provide ironclad jobs for teachers, billions of dollars in union dues for teacher unions, monopolies for educational bureaucracies, a guaranteed market for teacher college degrees, or a captive audience for indoctrinators. So that's a that's my spot. And so all of this. Funny, I, had, I had started writing a review, and I was going to quote that uh, because I was going to say he has this radical idea. <laughs> the purpose of education, of public Ooh. education, is to educate children. Uh, and it's not for the adults that are in the system. Um, yeah. yeah. There was a, I wouldn't say there was a favorite quote, but I did like at the very beginning at the preface, uh, he talks about this meeting in the 1970s where he's, there's a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, policymakers and public intellectuals uh, that, that Irving Crystal of, of the public interest had gathered. Uh, and they were, they were talking about, um, you know, trying to improve the school system that African Americans had, which mm -hmm. you know, were there, these schools were really terrible that were serving these, these students. And so he says, uh, you're talking as if good education for black children is something that has never happened before. And that has to be created from scratch. And everyone in the room is just blown away. Like, well, what do you mean? And so he starts telling about uh, the school he went to. It was a segregated school. It was all black. It was Dunbar High School in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, and uh, how actually this school that was run um, by black people for black people was able to provide a very high quality education. Uh, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I mean, and, and the, the real tragic irony uh, is that it was destroyed post desegregation. Uh, and, and he points out that this actually happened to a lot of, of black schools. Uh, now, he's not arguing we should go back to the era of segregation. God forbid. Far from it. His point was that this very well-intentioned policy of ending the horrific segregation of, the, of this institution meant essentially that the white establishment that was hostile to African-Americans then ended up taking over their schools. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, just running them into the ground, uh, which which really was was tragic. And then mm -hmm. you, you have a system today where, you know, there's still a great deal of racism to be overcome. Probably, I would say, a lot less than in the era of Jim Crow, 
but a lot of the, the, the district lines are still drawn the way that they were drawn back then by these racists to, to have these, these separate school yeah. systems. So uh, th there was a lot of food for thought in this book, uh, but he was saying that the closest you get sort of the, to the Dunbar High School as it was in those days was a lot of these charter chains that, that are opening up in areas where there's a high degree of poverty, where it's mostly African-Americans and Hispanics, and they are, you know, taking a, a no excuses approach. And people misunderstand what no excuses means. It doesn't just mean no excuses for the kids, meaning that there's, uh, you know, very strict discipline or stuff. What it means is really, and this is what it really meant initially, no excuses for the adults. The adults do not say, you know, there's poverty in the world, there's hunger in the world, there's racism in the world, there are all of these social ills and we can't educate these kids until we've solved all those social ills. They yeah, say you no. can't achieve. Right. right. It's worth trying to address all of those ills. It's worth trying to rid the world of poverty and racism. Uh, but we cannot let that be an excuse. These mm -hmm. kids, they only have third grade once, hopefully. And so uh, they don't have time for us to solve all of these, you know, seemingly intractable problems. We cannot let those things be excuses when it comes to we as adults in the system educating the children. And so they have very high expectations, not just of the kids, but of themselves uh, as educators. Uh, and by all accounts, uh, you know, Thomas Sowell shows with the data that they are doing a phenomenal job. And it's not just the data. It's the long wait lists from low income minority families to get their children into these schools, which they see as a passport out of poverty. Yep. And it's interesting, you know, do you guys ever you know peter robinson at the hoover institute uh yes. he does uncommon knowledge the podcast and uh thomas soul has been on that a bunch of times he went on i think the day after uh he did a podcast with um with peter robinson thomas soul did and mm -hmm. it was interesting he said that this book he had um spent i, I can't remember exactly the way that he phrased it but he said basically that he put more effort and his own time and 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 more research personally into this book than any other book he's ever written, which is saying something, because he's written a lot of books, as you said earlier, Jason, and a lot of them are really great books. Wow. But but this is a book that he's wanted to write for a long time. I thought that was interesting. Hey, and Matthew, it looks like you have someone uh, that's very interesting on your wall. Yeah, he was pointing. He was pointing earlier. <laughs> when like I have a picture, yeah, I gotta zoom in a little bit. Yeah, um, I, I like how Jason pointed out that he did some some of his own data analysis on on New York City charter schools compared to the traditional schools that that weren't random assignment, but still pretty rigorous in that you're controlling for location essentially and student populations. But I, I shared in the chat also the random assignment studies are also positive for for yeah. charter school. Um, in general, and I, I, I linked to a working paper uh, by Ron Zimmer and, and his colleagues that were released at the uh, Brown University's Annenberg Institute. He did a re review of the evidence and similarly well, I, finding random assignment studies tend to be positive. Too. I will say that the, the starkness of the positive findings here, I mean, the, the magnitude of the findings are much greater. Mm -hmm. the, 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 difference was quite stark. I want to also draw attention to uh, what he writes of the book, uh, to whom the book is is dedicated. Uh, and he says that the book is dedicated to those children whose futures hang in the balance. Uh, and he means it. I mean, this, this is, uh, you know, who knows how many books he has left in him. He's at 90 years old. He's still pumping out books. But uh, clearly, this was a, a labor of love. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the fire and passion that he has on this topic really does uh, shine through. Uh, particularly in uh, in his closing chapter and in, in his chapter where he talks about the um, all the people who are trying to stand in the schoolhouse door and prevent families uh, from accessing charter schools. And he also wrote a couple uh, opinion pieces on this, one in the New York Post where the title is Charter Schools Are the Best Way to Wipe Out Educational Disparity. He also had one at the Wall Street Journal that I'll, that I'll link to in the comments too. Yeah. Yep. There's a... 
It was an interesting read. You know, a lot of that um, data at the front end of the book is familiar. Uh, it's been talked about in other publications and, and of course studies, that's where that all came from. But um, his commentary, I've always just, you know, probably like you, Jason, I've always just found compelling. And so his commentary on the data in the later chapters in the book is uh, is just really interesting and and engaging. So, for anyone that doesn't have the book yet, I encourage you to get it, read through it. It's uh, it's a good read. Any other comments on the book? I think we're we're well, we are we're coming up against <laughs> an hour right now. So, yeah. uh, about ten minutes away from that. But um, I think Corey had one last item he wanted to discuss with his. Uh, uh, in, I have lost Behar today. Yeah, so I want to get. I want to show a little clip from uh, Behar, oh, yeah, yeah. Behar from uh, the View, which Inez Inez uh, Stepman was the first one to call this out. Uh, she's she's at Independent Women's Forum, but she's also an advisory uh, committee member, just like Jason is at the Educational Freedom Institute, uh, where there's just this false claim that's that's been going around for way too long, but here, check it out. Here's the clip. Well, then why do they keep defunding it? Why do they keep defunding education? Every time I turn around, it's less money. I was a teacher. I know what I'm talking about. Okay, Megan? I was a teacher. I know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's one thing to appeal to authority. It's another thing to appeal to authority and be wrong at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, so, Corey, why don't you pull up a, a chart that it. shows the uh, inflation-adjusted funding? Yeah, we can yeah. Pull, up, pull up the Andrew Colson chart. It's probably the easiest one, but yeah. I also, I mean, I also have one. Case, but, uh, you know, and there, there were, you know, it did dip slightly during the Great Recession, but you know, there, it's moving back up. Uh, but the the reality is that when you, even after you adjust for inflation, uh, the average per pupil funding. Right. I mean, look, not just since the 50s, it's but every single decade, it's gone up. even since 2000, it has gone up considerably. Now, mm -hmm. yes, this is in the aggregate and mm -hmm. it varies from district to district. That doesn't mean that there there aren't some districts out there where uh, they have had real cuts. That is the case. But uh, if you're talking in the aggregate, we have been investing more and more and more. Uh, we have been the the, in, the rate of increase uh, on public spending per pupil on uh, K twelve education has been increasing considerably faster than inflation. Well, that is and the other fact. Yeah, and, and the other important point here is what what's the average? You guys know better than I do off the top of your head. What's the average uh, percent of total state budget? nationally that each state spends on education it's usually around half uh yeah it, it and and for many years it was the highest of all budget categories for pretty much every state uh in recent years healthcare has risen especially as the the baby boomers age um mm -hmm. and there's uh, a, a a a decrease in the number of uh, births relative to uh older folk you have more spending on healthcare, uh, so but in even in those states, education is far and away number two. Yeah, and I think what what people mean when they say that education has be, been defunded, it's either they they're not getting the increases that they want, so that's a, a cut relative to what they really wanted, or mm -hmm. it's they're just saying that the money isn't going to the classroom, which is yeah. kind of what Ben Gaffney. Uh, pointed out in his uh, staffing surge report that, that we're increasing funding, but you know the teacher salaries aren't going up. And yep. uh, so, so if, you know. if we want to um, be generous to Joy Behar, who said she was a teacher, uh, the fact is teacher salaries are not going up. Teacher salaries are flat. In fact, when you adjust for inflation, have slightly declined in the last decade. Okay, but why is that? So how is it that you have? the overall budget going up, you have the per pupil budget going up, and yet teacher salaries are going down. Mm. Well, the obvious answer is that they are spending those dollars in areas besides the teacher salaries. Uh, Corey, I don't know if you how quick you are here, but do you have some of those Ben Scafferty charts that show where they are spending? 
uh, how much they're spending on teaching staff versus how much they're spending on non-teaching staff, or at least the growth in teaching staff versus non-teaching staff over the last several decades? Uh, I mean, I've, I've already pulled up the back to the staffing surge. Is it in the slideshow, yeah, maybe? Yeah, it's in there. It'll be in there. I think you may have passed it. Growth in students versus other uh, public school personnel. So you have growth in students since between 1950 to 2015. Uh, if you scale it, you know, relative to students, administrators and all other staff have increased by about seven times the amount right. of students, which is uh, much more than the amount of teachers and, and uh, total and that's all staff, right? So on the far left, you've got the purple, that's the student population, which basically doubles over that period of time. Uh, and then you've got a, a fast rate of growth for teachers, but a far faster rate of growth for the non-teaching staff, more than 700% growth. And uh, he now, some oh, will say, you know, one thing on this, there is one caveat, which is that uh, during this time period, you do introduce students with special, special needs ed. to the classroom. Yep. That has to be taken into account. That's why Scaffi also says, okay, well, let's let's look at this again, starting, you know, in the 1990s, by which point uh, you already have the integration of students with special needs. Yep. And he still finds, I mean, it's not quite as stark, but he still finds uh, that the increase in spending on non-teaching staff uh, far outpaces the increase in spending on teaching staff. And so that, that's where the money's going. You know, they say, look, we don't have money in the classroom. Our teachers are underpaid. Give us more money. Uh, state government gives them more money. And they say, okay, great. We're going to go hire new administrators. Yeah. We're going to go, uh, you know, buy a new stadium. We're going to buy other things. We're not actually going to, you know, put it into the pockets of teachers. We're going to hire new other staff to in pad our union dues. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, if you have more staff, you have more union membership, which more more political right. power, and then more union dues. But that, mm -hmm. that's not the, that doesn't happen when you raise teacher salaries. Um, okay, two more clips. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes, Jason. So we'll get your quick. We're going to play both the clips real quick, and then after, after both of them, uh, just let me yeah. know what you, what your thoughts are. Look, American investment in education is a promise to students and their families. If schools aren't going to reopen and not fulfill that promise, they shouldn't get the funds. Then give it to the families to decide to go to a school that is going to meet that promise. One more. If your child's school won't open this fall, demand your money back so you can find an alternative. It's your child. It's your tax dollars. Why should you pay for a service you're not getting? Okay, my immediate thoughts are this. I mean, this this is a matter of local control. Uh, it, it's and it, it varies. I, I don't think the president uh, or or the secretary of education should be saying that every school system has to open in the country and and, and pressuring them uh, because look the the needs of uh, Orlando. Uh, and downtown Phoenix and New York and Philadelphia and Los Angeles are going to be very different than the needs of, of some very rural areas. Uh, and even, you know, some rural areas are going to have different needs than other areas that are, that are also rural or suburban versus suburban, urban versus urban, right? It depends on uh, how the disease has uh, struck your area. Uh, and it depends on, you know, what sort of infrastructure you have, you know, whether you're prepared to, to go to, uh, you know, do you have the physical space that you can be socially distant in your school or not, right? Uh, think of some of those buildings we discussed earlier that have lots of empty spaces. Okay, well, maybe they're able to uh, open in that school because they can put smaller numbers of kids in the classrooms. Um, uh, or they can, you know, they're going to be open part-time. They're going to open three days a week, uh, or, you know, have a staggered schedule for kids coming in. There's there's a variety of different things. These decisions need to be made at the most local level possible. Uh, the family unit. The family unit, right? Uh, but but families and local communities. Um, now that being said, if a school just simply can't get their act together and 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 be open, uh, I do think that the the money should follow the child. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know that the feds can require that. Uh, I know that there has been some some talk of this, or at least uh, they would put um, some stipulations on federal dollars. Again, not a lawyer, not playing one mm. on a podcast. Mm. Uh, that's that's something that needs to be looked into. I don't know that the feds actually have that kind of authority, 
But states, certainly state policymakers should be saying, look, uh, we have an obligation to provide a public education to every child. Uh, pretty much every state constitution does require that. Uh, and if we cannot meet your child's needs, we're going to just give you a portion of those dollars and let you go figure it out for yourself. Um, I, I think that's that's only right and fair and just. There was a really good op-ed that talked about that. Uh, came out recently. <laughs> <laughs> hey, did you did you see that clip from Jay Seculo? He was on Fox like like last night no. or something. And um, same show that the other clip came from. Uh, but he was talking about how his organization, I don't even know the name of his organization, could help families um, take take the school districts to court if they don't reopen. Because like you said, the state constitution says they need to provide kids with an adequate education. Well, if you're not providing that, well then, you know, maybe some of the families will try to push back at the local level. <laughs> Very possibly. It, but again, it would probably be have to be under the state constitution, not, not yeah. the federal yeah. constitution. American Center for Law and Justice. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'll share it in the in the notes. But cool. We're already in an hey. hour. That was way too quick, Jason. Um, we probably had more things we could touch on, but we got some Always. lightning round at the end. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll have to have you on for a third time, of course. So sounds good. Um, Thanks thank for having me. For having on. Yeah. Thank yep. you so much, Jason, Director of Policy at uh, EdChoice. And uh, again, this is. Corey DeAngelis and Matthew Nielsen at the Educational Freedom Institute and other organizations. Uh, uh, until next week, this is the Educational Freedom Institute podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening. You can find EFI online at efinstitute.org, on Twitter at EF underscore Institute, and on Facebook at Educational Freedom Institute.